Um, maybe as a as a note before we begin. So this is <laughs> these are fragments. I think maybe that's the best. But these are fragments of an article that we wrote, and it will be published uh, at one point in a special issue of a journal called. Uh, it's the European Journal of English Studies, EJEES. This, uh, yeah, and so we're reading. I think it's a new article, and we're reading fragments of that, or we try to to make it into a coherent presentation. And it may well resemble that at times, <laughs> but also it will, will make some jumps. But uh, and, what it, and what it does do, I think it also relates well to your introduction. Um, it's a good sort of display of how we um, try to conceive of metamodernism, not as something that can help us or something that uh, allows us to set an agenda. But for us, it's always a symptomatic reading of culture. So close textual analysis of what's actually happening in, in, in cultural production. And then situate that in an objective situation, you could say, in an Adorno sense as well. That is definitely, must be situated definitely beyond the postmodern objective uh, condition, right? So we're living in a very different world. Um, and uh, we try to make sense of this world and seeing how, we, how other people are... Um, sort of navigating and orientating themselves in that, in that world through uh, a cultural analysis, but it's close textual analysis. So this article um, is built, for instance, around two case studies, um, autofiction, which is a genre that is uh, booming at the moment, and uh, true crime uh, dramas, uh, the keepers in this case, and that's also a genre that is um, re uh, very contemporary and very sort of um, booming at the moment. So that will be exemplary for how we try to do our, our research, I guess. I think it's worth saying in the long in the longer version uh, there's also a brief mention of parafiction in art yep. so if you want to uh, ask about that in the context of the idea that this is not just about literature uh, in the questions then um, yep. and Tim can talk about that okay because I don't know anything about that <laughs> you guys so basically I'm going to uh, read a brief introduction then Alice picks it up with art of fiction then Tim with uh, true crime and then I will have some uh, general brief remarks okay in Postmodernism and the Doctrine of Panfictionality, Marie-Laure Ryan argues that postmodern literature ventures into the realm of the textually possible, yet epistemologically scandalous. That is, by enacting metatextual ontological games, postmodernist fictions collapse the dichotomy between fiction and non-fiction, resulting in the expansion of fiction at the expense of non-fiction. Ryan's observations, of course, reiterate the dominant aesthetics of postmodernism, as identified and articulated by cultural theorists such as Jean, uh, Jean Baudrillard and Frederick Jameson. In such postmodernist theorizations, reality and the real are beyond reach. The possibility of art, literature and other forms of cultural narratives to speak to and depict the real is withdrawn. Authentic depth of representation is replaced by shallow, superficial service depictions, what Nielen also called the flat service of culture. For Baudrillard, postmodernism entailed the replacement of reality with hyperreality, where the image or representation no longer stood for a referential real, uh, no longer stood for a referential real world, but became instead a simulacrum. For Jameson, the loss of the real, or rather, the loss of perceptual and conceptual access to the real conditions of life in Western capitalist societies is to be understood in the context of a reconfiguration of capitalism as well as a shift in its corresponding cultural logic. 
the real objective conditions of everyday life could no longer be perceived and cognitively mapped by a subject that had lost any coherent sense of self due to the overload of stimuli in and of a globalizing consumerist and media culture. Jameson <coughs> substantiates this shift from modernism to postmodernism in terms of three interrelated losses, historicity, effect, and depth. He explains the latter, and that's what we're going to talk about it, so how are we reapplying depth on this surface of culture, I would say. Um, he explains the latter, most relevant for our present purposes, by reference to two late 20th century artworks, namely Warhol's Diamond Dust Shoes, which we have discussed elsewhere in the collection, and the life cost sculptures of Dwayne Hansen. Hansen's life cost in the 70s and 80s depicted ordinary people, as in, perhaps his most well-known pieces, Tourists and Tourists 2. Hansen's life-size three-dimensional sculptures made in polyester resin and fiberglass are shockingly realistic. So much so that viewers might mistake them for real people, particularly in the case of those works which are congruous with the gallery context, such as Museum Guard. Jameson acknowledges Hansen's life cost as Baudrillardian simulacra, arguing that their effect does not bolster realism but rather constitutes a de-realization of the surrounding world of everyday life. Addressing his reader's misidentification of the sculptures as real, Jameson continues, and I quote, Your moment of doubt and hesitation as to the breadth and warmth of these polyester figures, in other words, tends to return upon the real human beings moving about you in the museum and to transform them, also for the briefest instant, into so many dead and flesh-colored simulacra in their own right. The world, thereby, momentarily loses its depth and threatens to become a glossy skin, a stereoscopic illusion, a rush of filmic images without density. Hansen's sculptures encourage a sensation of depthlessness, Jameson argues, whereby the reflexive services of postmodern textualities cannot be excavated. There is no deeper beyond, no underpinning epistemic reality. Instead, what you see is what you get. It is, as Baudrillard would have it, a surface which refracts onto and flattens the world as perceived and cognitively mapped. Slide 3. <laughs> there is widespread consensus across the humanities, from literary to film studies, from erstwhile well critics of the postmodern to emergent scholars of the contemporary, that the dominant cultural logic of Western capitalist societies has, once again, been metamor metamorphosing, moving beyond the postmodern and towards a new cultural logic that we characterize as metamodernism. Delineating cultural periodization is an inevitably difficult task, especially when it concerns the present, and there are always fuzzy boundaries, of course. Nevertheless, as we have argued again in the edited collection, the conditions under which metamodernism could become the dominant cultural logic all emerged, converged and coagulated in the 2000s, lest as those years are conceived not as a temporal decade of 10 years, but as a period. And we argue that it's roughly lasting from 1999 to 2011. You, you see all the conditions for metamodernism uh, emerging there. To be sure, metamodernism should not be understood as a wholesale return of 19th and early 20th century realism or of the real, nor does, nor does it unequivocally abandon the postmodern critiques of history, effect and indeed depth. As Hutchin, Linda Hutchin cautions, postmodernism's discursive strategies and its ideological critique continue to live on. Metamodernist practices often combine pre-postmodern and postmodernist textual strategies so as to conceive of what Vermeulen 
has called the new deathiness. That's why the snow is there. Yeah, I know. Don't think so. The new deathiness is the is the notion, an unverifiable imagining, an intuition of depth. Crucially, this is not the ep- epistemological excavation of an actual depth, but the performative application of virtual depth. In this article, as a way of directly engaging with what Ryan has classed as the doctrine of pan-fictionality, we focus on how the typically postmodernist strategies of metatextuality and ontological collapse are put to new use, recycled or upcycled as it were, in order to re-engage with the possibilities of a reality, truth and above all, depthiness. In this paper, in other words, we map the parameters of metamodern depthiness with two case studies from the contemporary genres of literary autofiction and true crime television. In her plea against pan-fictionality, Ryan hoped to salvage the distinction between fiction and non-fiction as a means of protection against the postmodern replacement of reality. Today we demonstrate, we try to demonstrate that contemporary autofictions and true crime television series as metamodernist genres do not reinstate the epistemological boundary between fiction and non-fiction. Rather, through different strategies, they repurpose the ontological collapse of fact and fiction in order, firstly, to accentuate the reality that readers and viewers share and have shared with real flesh and blood authors or historical figures. And secondly, to evince a mutual responsibility that places the content of the work in an ethical relation to reality. Thus, when metamodernist texts deal fictively, fictively, or in any case through fictional means, with diverse yet contentious themes such as social discrimination or climate change, change, readers or viewers are positioned to engage with themes not as fictions but as real-world issues. And in our conclusion we situate the techniques of ontological collapse seen in autofiction and true crime and indeed also parafiction as uh, Alison also uh, indicated within a broader cultural frame arguing that such works apply virtual depth in one realm perform it in other words so as to measure its actual distance in another okay Alison uh, okay so I'm, I'm going to talk about autofiction here um, which broadly speaking is a, a genre that sits at the intersection between uh, memoir and autobiography on one hand, and on the other hand, kind of fiction proper. Um, So it often blends autobiographical fact with fictive details. Uh, Marie-Laure Ryan, who uh, Robin's already mentioned, interprets the crisis and the dichotomy between fiction and non-fiction as resulting in a characteristic postmodern pan-fictionality. Contemporary autofictions, I'm arguing here, utilise that same crisis to produce depthiness or to directly respond to uh, Ryan, what we might think of as pan-reality. Um, so here I'm going to use this text by Ruth Ezeki as a case study. The book is written as the diary of a Japanese teenager called uh, Now, but it's interspersed with third-person chapters, uh, the focalising character for which is somebody called Ruth. So autofictional resonances are immediately apparent. The character Ruth shares her forename with the <coughs> author Ruth Ezeki, and is therefore used by Ezeki in her own description in interview as a sort of avatar within the novel. Moreover, readers are told Ruth was a novelist. Um, a picture of Ruth uh, there are additional biographical correlations. Ruth lives on Vancouver Island, while Ezeki lives part of the year on Coates Island, both of which are in British Columbia. Ruth's fictional husband Oliver is an environmental artist, 
whilst Ozeki is married to German-Canadian ecological artist Oliver Kelheimer. So it might consequently be tempting to take these autofictional resonances as precisely a derealization or panfictionalization of subjecthood and everyday reality. Such a construal, however, relies solely on what Kierkegaard has called the use and abuse of the autobiographical contract in autofiction. That is, that's a neglecting of its style and purpose, or in other words, of the relationship between Ozeki's autofictional writing and the actual content of the book, The Tale at the Heart of a Tale for the Time Being. In the first, uh, what I'm going to call the Ruth chapters, Ruth finds Nell's diary washed up on the shore of her local beach and she subsequently begins reading it. Because the novel itself alternates between Now and Ruth chapters, readers seem to encounter these uh, diary entries from Now simultaneously to Ruth. After the second Now chapter, for instance, the second Ruth chapter begins with Ruth's reading being interrupted by the appearance of her cat, and for readers our reading of the diary is interrupted by this other, this other reading. The novel structure thus ontologically embeds the Now's chapter within the Ruth's chapters. Then, through these auto-fictional correspondences, embeds the Ruth chapters in, or perhaps places them in parallel with, the real world of Ruth Ezeki. Rather than alienate readers from the fictional world then, the effect, I think, is to make the fictional world feel more real. Um, the Ruth chapters um, also infiltrate the now chapters, which are footnoted with Japanese to English translations, references to intertext and first-person comments which identify Ruth as the writer of these footnotes. So this is just the first page of the novel, but you can see these footnotes that um, the Ruth character adds throughout. Furthermore, Ruth is frequently depicted in the act of googling or fact-checking. Davis suggests that this referential temptation also extends to real readers, with their identification of Ruth leading them to also scour the internet for information about Ezeki. This further ontological breach adds to the depthiness of a tale for the time being, as do numerous intertextual references to real-world texts. For instance, Oliver quotes the physicist Charles Bennett whilst reading The New Yorker, and then Ruth's footnote provides a reference to the real New Yorker article featuring the quotation. Another footnote embedded in the section of a fictional article, which is called uh, Japanese Shitsuzetsu, sorry, that's not how you say that. My Japanese is shit, obviously. Is Shitsuzetsu, uh, and the instability of the female eye, which is read by Ruth, refers to a poem called Rambling Thoughts by a real Japanese poet, Yasana Akiko. Davis conceives of the New Yorker reference as a metatextual gesture, highlighting Ruth's act of producing the text the reader holds, even as she is reading a received text. Such gestures may indeed highlight the fictional Ruth's act of production for the reader, but as the avatar of the real author Ruth Ezeki and her real-world production. In a short blog post here um, called Editorial Assistance, for instance, Ezeki describes the process of editing the manuscript for a tale for the time being, assisted by her bad cat Weems, who is then shown in front of her computer. She continues, Weems is lying on top of my, of my Chicago manual style, and also on top of In the Beginning, Woman Was the Sun, the autobiography of a Japanese feminist, written by, another name I can't pronounce in Japanese, founder of the Japanese feminist literary magazine Seito. In the Chicago Manual of Style, I was looking up the proper format for foreign language footnotes, appendices and bibliographies, of which there are many in this novel. In Rachel's autobiography, I was reading a poem written by Yasano Akiko for the inaugural issue of Seito entitled Rambling Thoughts. 
So we're getting all the same references in real-world text as well as <coughs> the novel. Not only uh, do all these reference works in Ezeki's blog post really exist, but the described context here maps onto those fictive descriptions of the character Ruth in a tale for the time being. Reading at her desk or searching on her computer, accompanied by her bad cat, which in the novel is called Pesto. Furthermore, the blog's photo of Ezeki's real cat functions as physical evidence, as Linda Haverty-Rugg argues of photographs in autobiography. And she says that photographs in autobiography serve to re-anchor the subject to the physical world. They insist on the verifiable presence of an embodied and solid individual. Thus, rather than expanding fiction into reality, Ozeki's metatextual autofiction writings perform the reverse, an ontological collapse leads to pan-reality. It creates a depthiness that encourages readers' effective engagements with Ruth, but as avatar of Ozeki, um, as well as um, encouraging them to empathise with Ruth, but also with Ruth's empathy for now uh, in that kind of ontological embedding. In interview, Ezeki explains that her autofictional avatar allowed her to respond to events in both a serious and playful way. And in this novel, um, which I haven't had time to touch on for, the, for, for this paper, uh, it talks about climate change, 9-11, bullying, social alienation, uh, diasporic communities. So there's a lot of quite important contemporary social issues being played with and brought out here as well. Um, yeah, so she says she responds to these events in both a serious and playful way. Ultimately then, a tale for the time being adopts both auto-fictional and metafictional strategies and whilst these are playful postmodernist devices which highlight the constructedness of the novel, their purpose here is rather serious. Contemporary auto-fictions like A Tale for the Time Being collapse the dichotomy between and embrace the blur of fiction and non-fiction. They exemplify metamodern depthiness by situating the narratives of fictional works in the real world and relatedly by using fictional means to present their story worlds as real. In doing so, contemporary autofictions provide authors and readers alike with a liminal space, a depthy pseudo-reality, in which to effectively respond to real-world issues. Yeah, that's my bit done. Yeah, so I'll do the last, the last bit, or the penultimate bit. Um, in the past decade, there has been a sudden and surprising upsurge in true crime documentaries. Crime fact that looks like crime fiction, as Seltzer has put it. True crime documentaries radically redevelop conventional true crime genre criteria, exchanging, for instance, the closed case for open-ended stories and tropes of recollection for strategies of critical interrogation and speculation. And recent uh, true crime reporting commonly possesses five particular assumptions and corresponding strategies. And those are these. So, uh, a crime has been committed but not solved, either because no one has really been found guilty or the wrong person has allegedly been imprisoned. Two, that the legal system as a... This is Stella Bruzzi. Two, that the legal system as a whole is unable and or unwilling to bring justice though individual police officers or lawyers may well be enlisted to help. This is by Borsma. That implicitly, this is three, people working in the entertainment industry, often without training in or experience with the topic at hand, are qualified to take on the involved roles, including those of detective and prosecution, as well as of the legal scholar deciding on the constitutional parameters of justice. This is an argument made by Engli. That the fictional techniques used in that industry are legitimate means to communicate and or execute those roles. 
shitload of people have spoken about this. And finally, <laughs> that fiction can make valid empirical claims about the nature of what we tend to call, in common parlance, reality. I think we're going on now. Yeah. yeah sorry. No, no, that's okay. Uh, the Netflix hit show, The Keepers. How many of you have seen The Keepers? Okay, so two, three, I don't know. Okay. Uh, the Keepers purports to document a group of brave elderly women trying to solve a murder of one of their beloved teachers way back, Sister Kathy, in their Catholic high school decades ago. As the account progresses, more and more salient details come into view, taking center stage, either momentarily or protractedly. In one, su uh, one such terrible, tragic detail that is increasingly foregrounded is that many of the women were abused as minors at school. And this aspect becomes important, especially because the murder teacher was informed of the crime and, in some accounts, set on confronting the perpetrator, who, according to the accounts, is another teacher, a priest. Other details that take on significance are the priest's alleged friendship with and participation in the abuse of other teachers and priests, of police officers, as well as other people in power, including politicians. Uh, the apparent cover-up by the local church councils and archdioceses, I don't know if I pronounced it right. The seeming intentional negligence on behalf of the prosecution and finally competing and inconsistent accounts by some of the key witnesses. The narrative is set up as a contemporary televisual whodunit, suspensefully circling outwards from the dead body to the detective and their personal tr detectives and their mm -hmm. personal troubles to the powerful players attempting to manipulate and or obstruct the investigation to the various suspects who are all shown to be untrustworthy and each of which may or may not have been involved. It's really like the killing, right? It's set up like the killing entirely. The series narrative deployment of strategies of suspense and revelation is mirrored in the cinematography. There are, to give one example here, almost no static shots in the entire series. So, right, so for example, um, even shots of landscapes, crime scenes, photographs and books move, alternately zooming in search of hidden details or zooming out to look for missing context, slowly panning up to reveal a prop, swiping left to expose archive materials, right? So even if we get the photograph of Sister Ketty, oh, the camera, every single time we see it, it keeps zooming in and out for no apparent um, narrative reason other than to suggest a sense of looking, of searching. It becomes really a trope throughout the series. Uh, one of the most obvious narrative devices is the use of handheld cameras. So as if, to, as if to sneak up on persons, the documentarian has already talked to minutes earlier. In one particularly problematic shot, the camera jerks left and right so as to find the right frame for its subject, or indeed suspect, who not only is completely aware of the documentarian's presence, because they have just been talking to each other, um, uh, but, it's but he's also standing still. Um, whilst the camera also unevenly wrecks focus in an apparent attempt to capture his facial features, right? So the camera, we've just been talking to this dude, and then um, um, uh, later, minutes later, we get this constant trying to, to, to get him into view, and the camera fails as if this, you know, as if we're taping him secretly. It's really quite something, I think. Uh, throughout the Keepers, strategies conventionally associated with fiction are used not just to communicate what's happening in its appropriate narrative or emotional context, but to make that very thing happen. The rhythm of editing is adjusted to signal tension or contemplation. Images of a smiling sister Kathy are juxtaposed crudely with shots of her grave, I imagine, to register a sense of shock. Archival footage is mixed with unexplained entirely unexplained bits and pieces of fiction film so as to encourage a consideration of one, I have to guess, in terms of the other. 
Um, oh. And Um, and images are composed in obvious intertextual reference to fictional conspiracy theories involving the church, the legal system, politics, and often all of them at once, such as Angels and Demons, House of Cards, The Good Wife, and All the President's Men. I'm guessing you see uh, uh, plenty of them here already. So as to draw conclusions... Um, so as to draw conclusions... Page 9. Am I on page 9? Okay. Uh, with monogram pixelated zoom shots of statues of saints and angels, some of which are angels of justice, covered in flies, making up much of the opening credits. If you've seen it, this is quite wonderful. What increasingly becomes obvious as the Keepers progresses, and what legal scholar Megan Borsma has observed in Making a Murderer and Serial, two famous podcasts, is that in lieu of legally admissible evidence as to the murder of Sister Cathy or the alleged cover-ups or neglig negligence, these fictional devices take on the very role of the prosecution, for whom doubts are of course no less convincing than facts. I think we've all seen the OJ, OJ trial. Um, Concerns are voiced, but never addressed again. Allegations are made by interviewees, often those who we are asked to be sympath sympathetic with, but never resolved. As the camera zooms or pans down, there is always the sense that there is more to be revealed, that there are truths still to be discovered. And in this sense, the ontological collapse of true crime documentaries is reminiscent of a remark by the philosopher Jean-Marie Schaeffer with respect to someone who is caught in a lie, and I quote, a repeal is not equivalent to a cancellation. He wrote this uh, about uh, uh, Wilkie Mirsky, actually, I think. Uh, yeah. A repeal is not equivalent to a cancellation. The hardest challenge is not to make believe the reality of fictional entities, but it is to reduce to fictional status entities that have already been introduced as real. End quote. One of the distinctions that fictional world theories tend to make between actual worlds and fictional ones is that the latter are neither necessarily coherent nor ever complete. Indeed, fictional worlds always, of course, as Ruth Ronan puts it, have spots of indeterminacy. There is stuff that is unknowable. Curry, for example, writes that we don't know and cannot know how many hair Sherlock Holmes has. Most of these spots are incidental. To paraphrase the film scholar V.F. Perkins, no story would ever get going if it had to itemize all of the world's details. That people breathe, that they can bleed, that there are plants, that there is gravity and so on. There are spots, of course, though, that are purposeful, that add drama or ambiguity. Gaps that matter precisely because they are gaps. Recent studies of transmedia storytelling suggest, moreover, that texts expressly create gaps so that fans can fill them in in their ebooks and their blogs and whatnot. The conceit of the keepers is to treat the actual world according to the criteria of the fictional one. Through its interplay between setups that are not resolved and cinematographic devices of suspense, it opens up spots of indeterminacy within our usual models of measuring the world. Science, for instance, or the law. And occasionally it forecloses these gaps imperceptibly. The assumption here, after all, is not just that the police and the legal system are untrustworthy, but that filmmakers with no investigative expertise can make a more honest and more accurate assessment. Corroborate a truth that they feel they already know. Okay, that was my bit. Okay, by way of conclusion, I will make it short. So these studies, a tale of the time being, and the keepers show that... Sorry, what's up? No, no, nothing. Show that metamodern texts play with fictionality precisely as a means of creating depthiness by way of what could be called, following a gag from comedian Stephen Colbert, truthiness. 
that is, truth not as verifiable epistemic reality, but as part of a felt, experiential, possible reality. Contemporary autofiction, such as Ozeki's A Tale for the Time Being, conflate fiction with autobiography and historical reality, not at the expense of non-fiction, the repudiation of truth or the loss of depth. Instead, they ask readers, as in Kierkegaard's interpretation of Philip Roth's autofictional works, to make sense of the truth of the fiction, rather than the truth in the fiction. Meanwhile, true crime documentaries such as The Keepers use the techniques of fiction and storytelling to create, or perhaps even recreate, a version of reality that is purposely is truer, more realistic than the evidence-based epistemic reality as traditionally defined by experts, say in law, or science, or journalism. It overrides reality by creating a fictional universe that both recombines well-established facts and stray or even alternative facts, factoids really, and uses and abuses its spots of indeterminacy in order to suggest an alternative depthy reality. In other words, the keepers applies depth, but it applies it precisely in contexts where such depth or truth couldn't be excavated previously. So metamodern genres such as contemporary autofiction fiction in literature and true crime in television evince a reconfigured relation between the real and the fictional, or rather, a world with an epistemological reality and a universe with a fictional ontology in today's culture. There is no wholesale return to depth models, that's impossible, but there are pan-realistic intimations of depth, of depthiness, dressed up as truth claims that are, by necessity, fictional or fictionalized. In this way, fiction beckons for reality. Okay, thank you. Thank you.